Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Here are today's top stories. The district attorney investigating Trump tries to sue a member of Congress, but a judge rejects the suit almost immediately. New findings indicate the White House knew about the raid on Mar-a-Lago in advance, despite denying these claims days after the raid. We'll hear from a man involved in the investigation. The Biden administration is pushing hard for the shift to electric vehicles. The administration has proposed strict new emissions rules. A new AI bot seems to have the goal of destroying all of humanity. Meanwhile, the government is working on regulating AI just like food and cars are regulated. The world's first human death from a rare type of bird flu newly reported in China. The WHO says the virus doesn't seem to spread person to person. A judge rejected a legal request by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. He is seeking to stop Congress from looking into his case against Trump. DA Bragg's urgent request for a restraining order against Congressman Jim Jordan was rejected the same day it was filed. Earlier Tuesday, Bragg sued Jordan for allegedly infringing on state sovereignty. Jordan has subpoenaed a former Bragg deputy and demanded documents from Bragg's office regarding the prosecution of former President Trump. Bragg's lawsuit states Jordan has no power under the Constitution to oversee state and local criminal matters. Bragg's office also asked the court to enter an order that would block Jordan and the House Judiciary Committee from enforcing a subpoena to former Manhattan prosecutor Mark Pomerantz. Jordan said on Fox News that Bragg is obstructing a legal, legitimate congressional investigation and interfering with the 2024 election. In a separate case, Trump will be heading to New York City tomorrow. That's in regards to Attorney General Letitia James's fraud lawsuit. He faces questioning scheduled to take place in James's Manhattan office. Turning to the raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, the White House says it didn't know about the raid beforehand. But new evidence obtained by America First Legal Foundation suggests the opposite. I wanted to learn more, so I sat down with Ian Pryor, senior advisor at the Oric Foundation. Ian Pryor, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. The FBI raided former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence in search of classified documents on August 8, 2022. Days later, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters the president was not briefed and was not aware of the raid. However, documents just obtained by your organization, America First Legal, suggest otherwise. Can you tell us what documents you obtained and why they lead you to believe the White House was involved in the raid? Sure. So we sent a Freedom of Information Act um, with respect to these documents. And, and what we found is that um, the Justice Department via the Biden White House had made a, a special access request um, regarding the documents at, at President Trump's home. Now, a special access request um, is, is when an incumbent president um, needs those records for current or, or future business of the White House. Um, but that that access request, that special access request, was was thus coordinated with the Justice Department, really to create a, a pretext for the Justice Department's investigation. So ultimately, what you have here is a coordination between the White House and what is supposed to be an, an independent Department of Justice that operates on law enforcement, working together to create you know the appearance here, or not the appearance, but to to create um, the pretext for an investigation. Now, let's talk about the National Archives and Records Administration. It claimed it had not been involved in the DOJ's investigation into Mar-a-Lago, but America First Legal suggests otherwise. What did your investigation reveal about NARA's involvement? 
Well, it was it was through NARA that the the special access request was um, was coordinated, and it was NARA that went and, and spoke um, to Congressman Mike Turner on August 16th, 2022, and said that they had not been involved in the DOJ investigation um, or any searches that it conducted. However, the documents tell a different story, and that the White House, as, as stated earlier, processed this special access request to NARA, which then coordinated with the Department of Justice um, to effectuate this. So what's the significance of your findings, and uh, what are the implications? Well, I think the significance is that you have a, a White House and a Department of Justice that continue to collude on political matters. And you know, the Department of Justice is supposed to be above that. Um, the Department of Justice is supposed to be a organization, a department in the federal government that operates with you know, adherence to the law and does not get involved in political targeting. There needs to be somewhat of a wall between the White House and the Department of Justice, certainly when it comes to investigations. Policies are a different story, you know, how the Department of Justice, what they will focus on um, from a broad lens. But when you talk about specific investigations, the White House should not be colluding with the Department of Justice to target the political adversary of the president, Joe Biden, in this case, former President Donald Trump. Do you think America First Legal's findings could impact the case against former President Trump? Well, certainly, I think when you're looking at, at what is clearly political targeting, I mean, that shows a bias that shows um, selective prosecution based on, you know, political affiliation here or um, the fact that he's a political adversary. And that could be a, an adequate um, defense going forward wherever this, this lands. Ian Pryor, Senior Advisor to America First Legal, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. We reached out to the White House for comment on America First Legal's findings, but didn't hear back from them. Former First Lady Melania Trump is looking to dispel rumors about her stance on Bragg's case. She's been mostly silent since her husband's arraignment. Her office tweeted out a statement yesterday. It says, news organizations have made assumptions about her stance and cited unnamed sources to bolster their claims. She asked people to exercise caution and good judgment when determining if stories about her are accurate. The statement declares, particularly when they fail to cite Mrs. Trump as a source of information. Nearly 70% of passenger vehicles sold in the U.S. could be electric by 2023. That's if the Biden administration's strict new emissions rules push through. NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us more. The EPA's proposal would set the strictest tailpipe emissions limits ever imposed. Model years 2027 through 2032 would be affected. The rules call for far more new electric vehicle sales than the auto industry agreed to less than two years ago. The plan would represent the strongest push yet towards a shift from gasoline-powered to battery-powered vehicles. But critics aren't sold on the idea. Congressman Guy Reschenthaler says EVs increase our reliance on China. Here, he questions Interior Secretary Deb Holland. Electric vehicles and renewables are heavily dependent on critical minerals, correct? Yes. China accounts for 63% of the world's rare earth mining. Electric vehicles and renewables deepen our reliance on China, correct? Yes. Okay. okay. Environmental Policy Director Jason Hayes wondered on Fox News how an already overburdened electric grid would cope with a 60% increase in EVs. This is just nonsensical. Literally, it's an order of magnitude increase. We're already seeing 
problems with our electric grid. Hayes also addressed the increased need for batteries and the cost of their replacement. And the battery packs cost as much or more than the entire car. So you're going to start replacing entire cars. He decried the effect of the massive increase in mining for the required minerals and metals to make the batteries. Meanwhile, on Fox News, Oil and Gas Association President Tim Stewart says he actually owns an EV, but has major issues with it in cold temperatures. The range of RV drops by upwards of 40%. It means I have to charge twice as much for the same amount of range. EPA Administrator Michael Regan says the proposal will reduce air and climate pollution and lower fuel costs for families. A new poll shows that only 20% of Americans say it's very or extremely likely they will purchase an EV the next time they buy a car, while nearly 50% say they are unlikely to go electric. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The federal government is asking the public to help regulate artificial intelligence. Meanwhile, a new AI system apparently plans to destroy all of humanity. Here's the story. A new artificial intelligence bot seems to aim to destroy humanity and establish global dominance. The bot is called Chaos GPT, and it's based on a modified version of OpenAI's AutoGPT. A YouTube video appears to show the system's creation. An unknown programmer apparently tasked the bot to have a destructive, power-hungry, manipulative personality whose ultimate goal is to destroy humanity. This was posted on a YouTube channel called Chaos GPT. There's also a Twitter account with the same name. It's unclear if the AI system created those accounts on its own or if the accounts in the video appearing to show the programming process were created as a joke. After giving instructions, the system apparently gave a danger warning, asking, are you sure you want to start Chaos GPT? The programmer replied yes, to which the program immediately responded, quote, I need to find the most destructive weapons available to humans. The related Twitter account, which was only created a few days ago, at one point tweeted, Human beings are among the most destructive and selfish creatures in existence. There is no doubt that we must eliminate them. At one point, Chaos GPT said the first place for large-scale legal manipulation of human beings would be via Twitter. Again, NTD can't verify if those posts were made by the AI system or a real person. Meanwhile, the federal government is asking for public input on measures to regulate artificial intelligence tools. A Commerce Department agency says it will spend the next 60 days examining options such as audits, risk assessments, and a potential certification process. The agency said in a statement, just as food and cars are not released into the market without proper assurance of safety, so too AI systems should provide assurance to the public, government, and businesses that they are fit for purpose. President Biden last week said tech companies must ensure their products are safe before making them public. U.S. Senators are pushing for a digital identity system. A bill is now progressing in the Senate for debate, but critics say such a system brings privacy concerns. The bill hopes to reduce identity theft by helping U.S. citizens prove who they are online. Some aspects of digital ID could enhance privacy. It would allow users to exchange only the information necessary for transactions. However, not everyone agrees with the idea. Political commentator James Melville says a digital ID app allows governments to snoop on people. He suggests citizens should instead be given better capability to track members of government. And Canada-based Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms says a digital ID system has many financial surveillance and privacy concern drawbacks. But many governments around the world are starting to consider some form of digital ID.
The European Union is pushing forward a digital framework to use across member countries. Authorities say a huge Indiana industrial fire spewing toxic smoke will burn for several days. The fire has already forced the evacuation of more than 2,000 residents. As of late Tuesday night, the Richmond Bla Indiana blaze was under control and not expected to spread. But local officials say the fire will keep burning and producing smoke, soot, and ash for several more days. The fire is located at a former factory 70 miles east of Indianapolis, not far from the Ohio border. Plastics and other materials have been stored at the location for recycling or resale since it ceased operations in 2009. The fire started in a tractor trailer parked at the site and quickly spread. The cause is not yet known. Numerous emergency units are present at the scene to contain the fire. An update on the leaked Pentagon documents. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin vows to leave no stone unturned to find the culprit. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the Secretary's comments. Austin said he was first briefed on the document leak last Thursday. A Pentagon probe is zeroed in on documents dated February 28th and March 1st. And we've referred the matter to the Department of Justice, which has opened a criminal investigation. Austin remarked that the U.S. takes the leak very seriously and will continue to work closely with allies and partners. And nothing will ever stop us from keeping America secure. The documents allegedly relate to U.S. intelligence and information surrounding Russia, Ukraine, Israel, and South Korea, especially information related to the Russia-Ukraine war, specifically Ukraine's military capabilities and shortcomings. One document reportedly mentions the small number of Western Special Forces troops in the country. Austin says that he has every confidence the Ukraine leadership will do what great leaders do and continue to fight the enemy and not be driven by a specific plan. They have uh, uh, much of the capability that they need to, uh, to continue to be successful. The documents labeled secret and top secret first appeared on social media sites in March. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The director of the CIA is speaking publicly for the first time since what appears to be classified U.S. military documents were leaked online. Bill Burns says the leak is an urgent problem that needs to be addressed quickly. Deeply unfortunate uh, leak of classified documents is, is certainly as intense as anything and that now part of the inbox as well. And... You know, it's something that the U.S. government takes extremely seriously. Burns says that the CIA doesn't believe Russian President Vladimir Putin is serious about negotiations at this stage of the war in Ukraine. He stressed the importance of Ukraine's planned offensive, saying a great deal is at stake in the coming months. For the first time in history, the White House has declared a drug to be an emerging threat in the country. The Biden administration made the declaration about the powerful synthetic opioid fentanyl combined with xylazine. Xylazine is an animal tranquilizer, also known as Trank or Trank Dope. Officials say it has been found in almost all 50 states and is linked to an increasing number of overdose deaths. The Drug Enforcement Administration says Trank was found in 23% of fentanyl powder and 7% of fentanyl pills seized in 2022. The FDA approved xylazine for use in veterinary medicine, but it's not approved for humans. Experts say it can leave severe skin ulcers and rotting skin that could lead to amputation. 
A top Texas prosecutor's proposal would make things easier on drug suspects. The policy would allow them to remain free until the drugs are tested and confirmed to be a controlled substance. The rule would apply to suspects busted with four grams. The rule would apply to suspects busted with four grams or less. The rule would not be applied to suspects also accused of a violent crime. The proposal is the handiwork of DA Kim Ogg, who is running for re-election in Harris County. Fox News reports that billionaire George Soros previously chipped in $500,000 to her advertising campaign. That was for a 2016 run. Soros is often criticized for funding prosecutors who are soft on crime. Kentucky must pay several hundred thousand dollars to people who sued over COVID-19 lockdown policies. A court rules that the state must cover their legal fees. Three plaintiffs sued Kentucky Governor Andy Bershear in 2020 over orders they received to quarantine after they attended an Easter church service. T.J. Roberts said in a statement, Bershear told the people of Kentucky that churchgoers will have their licenses taken down and they will be forced to quarantine and face jail time. I ignored that order along with dozens of brave Christians and worshipped the Lord. Now the governor has to pay more than $272,000 for the attorneys, but the repayments of the attorney's fees will come from public taxpayer funds. In explaining his decision to stop in-person church gatherings, Bershier said that a local COVID-19 outbreak had resulted in multiple deaths and that it was traced to a church service in the state. There's another addition to the list of potential 2024 presidential candidates. GOP Senator Tim Scott has launched a presidential exploratory committee. The South Carolina Republican is scheduled to hold events in Iowa today. Scott gained national prominence after delivering the GOP response to President Biden's address to a joint session of Congress in 2021. The Democratic National Committee has announced the location for its 2024 convention. President Biden chose Chicago as the spot yesterday. The Windy City beat finalists New York and Atlanta for the site. Officials say Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker played a big role in the decision. That's because Pritzker pledged to finance the convention with his own money and by fundraising. Pritzker says the state's defense of abortion access was a deciding factor. He downplayed criticism of Chicago being plagued by homicides. Republicans could cite rising crime rates in Democrat-run cities as an issue to voters. Both Democrats and Republicans are zeroing in on the critical Midwestern region ahead of next year's presidential election. The GOP is holding their national convention in Milwaukee in July of 2024. The Biden administration on Tuesday released two options to prevent water shortages in Colorado River reservoirs. The plans describe how seven Western states should cut their water use. One option would be more beneficial to California and some tribes along the river. The second option is likely to be more favorable to Nevada and Arizona. California gets the largest share of water from the Colorado River, while Arizona and Nevada also receive significant water supplies from the river. The nearly 1,500-mile-long river serves 40 million people across seven states. It also generates hydroelectric power for regional markets and irrigates nearly 6 million acres of farmland. French President Emmanuel Macron claimed to be a Maoist years ago. Is this behind his recent controversial comments on Taiwan? In Canada, the entire board of directors from the Trudeau Foundation resigns. It's in connection to a large donation from a Chinese businessman. Find out what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has to say about it when we return.
Welcome back. China has recorded the first known human death from H3N8 bird flu. The WHO says this type of avian influenza is rare in humans. The victim who died was a 56-year-old woman from the southern province of Guangdong. She was hospitalized in late February and died on March 16th. China didn't report the case until late last month. The WHO says the woman had multiple underlying conditions, plus a history of exposure to live poultry. She's the, first, she's the third person known to have contracted the virus. All three cases occurred in China, with the first two reported last year. The WHO noted that the strain doesn't appear to spread between people, but experts are concerned about China's delay in reporting such cases, considering the country's lack of transparency during the COVID-19 outbreak. Over in Canada, a donation from a Chinese businessman from seven years ago is shaking up the Trudeau Foundation. The entire board of directors is jumping ship. Here are the details. In a statement on Tuesday, the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation announced that its entire board of directors, including the president and CEO, has resigned. This comes as the foundation faces growing scrutiny over a Chinese donation made in 2016. The Globe and Mail first reported in February this year that the Trudeau Foundation received a $200,000 donation from a Chinese businessman. The billionaire was found to have ties with the Chinese Communist regime, and the donation was allegedly meant to influence Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government. In a statement announcing the resignation, the Trudeau Foundation said, The political climate surrounding a donation received by the Foundation in 2016 has put a great deal of pressure on the Foundation's management and volunteer board of directors. The board added, the circumstances created by the politicization of the foundation have made it impossible to continue with the status quo. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he has, in his words, no intersection with the foundation. Canadian lawmakers have been calling for investigations into allegations of Chinese interference in elections. The Trudeau Foundation says it would return the donation amid the recent controversy. The Trudeau Foundation was created in 2001 to promote research in the humanities. It was founded by friends and family of Justin Trudeau's late father, former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau. Three directors will remain in the foundation for the time being. With eyes on the French President Emmanuel Macron's Taiwan remarks, let's take a deeper dive into the ideological roots behind his philosophy. The French leader has openly called himself an heir to the spirit of the Chinese Communist Party's founder. NTD's Colin Fredrickson has more. An informal tea meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping, capping off French President Emmanuel Macron's three-day China trip last week. But these two share a passion that goes far beyond the age-old beverage. In March 2017, then-popular presidential candidate Macron had an interview with French newspaper Le Parisan. He publicly declared, I am a Maoist, adding, a good program is one that works, referring to the effectiveness of his campaign. Mao was the first and most authoritarian leader of the Chinese Communist Party, ruling for 27 years before his death in 1976. An estimated 65 million Chinese people died as a result of his policies and attempts to craft Chinese socialism, the most famous of which was the Great Famine, the consequence of his order to centralize China's agriculture under a policy called the Great Leap Forward. Current party leader Xi Jinping is seen as a staunch follower of Mao, given his dedication to Mao's ideology, his often hardline policies, and his stress on the Communist Party's absolute leadership over all aspects of society. Apart from his comments on Maoism, 
Macron also cited other communist leaders on various occasions. During a later interview with French TV station RTL, Macron invoked a famous quote from former Chinese statesman Deng Xiaoping as he addressed the issue of overcoming the left-right divide. It doesn't matter if a cat is white or black. We only ask him to catch the mouse. Earlier that same year, at a conference in western France, Macron made repeated calls for what he called cultural revolution in multiple sectors. The term evokes one of the darkest periods of communist rule in China, when millennia of cultural heritage were wiped out, with hundreds of thousands of lives slaughtered. Macron also likened his campaign and polling analysis to a long march. The name relates to the communist forces' south-to-north migration during the Civil War to escape the then-ruling Guomindang. Mao's ideas had a profound impact on French society back in the 60s. One of Macron's rivals in that year's election, politician Jean-Luc Mélenchon, is also a typical Maoist. He was known for wearing Mao's jacket during campaign events. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Macron's reception back in Europe has been a bit chilly. On Tuesday, the French president was in the Netherlands to give a speech, but angry protesters cut him short. For humanity and our common values. Hello. I think we lost something. Where is French democracy? Where did we lost it? In the audience, a man was heard shouting, Where is French democracy? Another activist held a banner. It read, President of violence and hypocrisy. Protesters were then expelled from the venue. The speech marked the start of Macron's two-day visit in the Netherlands. The French leader has seen weeks of protests at his home against his pension law. It would delay retirement age by two years. Macron forced the bill through without a final vote. Meanwhile, the French president has come under fire for his recent remarks on Taiwan. He said Europe must not be a follower of either Washington or Beijing. His Polish counterpart weighed in ahead of the trip to, U to the U.S. He called the alliance with an alliance with Washington an absolute foundation of European security. Chinese state media is spending millions of dollars posting inserts in U.S. newspapers, the goal being to influence U.S. readers. Here's the story. Ever see these ad inserts in local newspapers? Made to look like news, they boast China as a tourist destination or paint a positive image of Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Like this one, published on USA Today, saying Xi's visit to an American school left an indelible mark on its students. These news articles lookalikes are actually ads paid by Beijing's top propaganda outlet, China Daily Newspaper. Adding these inserts in U.S. publications is one tool Beijing uses to influence American policy and opinion. And the outlets printing them are some of the most influential in the U.S., like Foreign Policy, Time Magazine, and the Los Angeles Times. Since 2016, China has spent over $300 million to influence U.S. public opinion more than any other country. That's according to Open Secrets, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit that tracks lobbying data. China Daily is one of Beijing's top agents carrying out the task in the U.S., spending over $8 million in 2022 to do it. Where did that money go? Here's a breakdown of some of the company's ad expenses last year. Last March, the Beijing outlet paid foreign policy over $30,000 for advertisements and another $30,000 in April and June. For Time magazine, that number jumps to around $100,000 a month from February to May. 
As for USA Today, a steady sum of over $50,000 paid in January, April, and June. For the Los Angeles Times, the amount reaches the tens of thousands from January to June. The Chinese Communist Party also placed ads in some regional newspapers, such as the Houston Chronicle, the largest daily newspaper in Houston, Texas. In the New England area, the Boston Globe, and on the West Coast, the Seattle Times. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please email us at news.today at ntd.com. The UK braces for disruptive walkouts to health service. Junior doctors say they have no choice but to strike, while the health secretary says it will imp impact patients. Small businesses in France are floundering. They now have to pay back pandemic loans when profits are running low. More shortly here on NTD News Today. In the UK, junior doctors are on strike. The health secretary says the walkouts have clearly been timed to have an impact on patients. Junior doctors say they don't want to strike, but feel they have no other choice, with some leaving for different professions or other countries. NTD's Malcolm Hudson sent us this report. As you can see behind me here, masses of junior doctors are striking for more pay. They're calling for a 35% raise, that is from £14 to £19 an hour. The health secretary, however, says this is unrealistic and instead that the government needs to focus on tackling inflation. Junior doctors feel incredibly undervalued and as a result, there are a lot of them are questioning continuing in the NHS. So a lot of them are leaving to go to Australia, Canada, some are taking exams so they can go to America. Others are just leaving to work in the city of London instead in other jobs. Singh said, ultimately, patients will have to deal with the consequences of doctors leaving. The British Medical Association, or BMA Union, is demanding a 35% raise. First-year junior doctors would go from £14 per hour to 19 Senior junior doctors, those in the final years before consultancy, would see a raise from £28 to £38 an hour. The BMA has claimed junior doctors in England have seen a 26% real terms pay cut since 2008 because pay raises have been below inflation. Health Secretary Steve Barclay, however, said their demands are too high. My door is open and we remain willing to engage constructively with the junior doctors, but clearly a demand of 35%, which would involve some junior doctors receiving over £20,000 more in terms of their basic pay, is not reasonable to your viewers, to those who have to balance the wider issues of the economy and getting inflation down, alongside recognising the very real pressures that the NHS and junior doctors have been under, not least from the pandemic. Barclay said he wants the government to reach a fair and reasonable settlement. He also said the timing of the strike is regrettable. It comes after the Easter weekend when many doctors were on holiday. Striking doctors described how they are struggling to afford groceries and are borrowing money to pay rent. One junior doctor said she has faced very difficult days. The most difficult day I'd say was on general surgery. Um, I didn't drink or eat anything until about 5pm. Um, I started at 8am in the morning. I saw 70 patients on the ward round, so I covered two wards all by myself, just myself and the registrar. Um, and that was probably one of the hardest days that I've had. It was on a weekend, so there's not many staff. Sadly, you know, it's not just myself that have these types of shifts where you just end up feeling, you know, completely broken and exhausted at the end of them. Many feel very overworked. 
others are trying different means to earn more while working less. I know personally many people who are working as what we call locum doctors at the moment because um, they feel that to be on a full-time contract within the NHS at the moment doesn't, um, it doesn't give them a fair salary and that actually they're better off working a little bit less and earning more per hour as, as an agency worker. Bilton said increasing junior doctors' wages will cost the taxpayer around £1 billion. In comparison, he said test and trace cost £37 billion and that the NHS spends approximately £3 billion on agency fees per year. Restoring doctors' pay to 2008 inflation-adjusted levels would go some way to tackling that agency bill. Downing Street said the raise would cost £2 billion and is completely out of step with other pay settlements in the public sector. They said, It continues to be the case that we call on the BMA junior doctors to cease their strikes and revise their starting point for negotiations, which is 35%, which we continue to believe is unreasonable and is not affordable for the British taxpayer. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. In France, many restaurants and other small businesses are in a tight spot. During pandemic lockdowns, they received state-backed loans. Now they not only have to return the money, but they also face higher energy costs and fewer patrons. Many see little hope to stay afloat, and TD France's correspondent David Vivez has the story. It's only months before the great die-off for small businesses in France. That's Christophe Chirat's prediction. He's a restaurant owner and founder of a small business union. Chirat says many restaurant owners are getting choked by rising costs and see no way out anymore. Attendance is down. Profit margins are down because the price of raw materials and supplies has skyrocketed. It's not just energy. It's everything. Everyone sees it. Everyone knows it. But the business owners, we have a lot of people who call us and are in tears. It's sad. It's moving. The French government has promised several measures to support small businesses, such as a cap on energy prices. In January, the government said firms with fewer than 10 employees will be allowed to renegotiate their contracts with their electricity providers. But Shirad says it has been a very complicated process to implement, as electricity suppliers send business owners several bills while renegotiating the contracts. As a result, many business owners haven't received their final electricity bills yet. And so far, the new terms of the contracts won't make a difference. It's just impossible. The general situation is untenable. It's explosive, really. And I think the second half of the year will be because there are all those who have not yet received their electricity bills. So things will get out of hand. And this will be one of the big surprises of the spring, I think. It will be catastrophic. Business failures in France have reached a level not seen in 25 years. 9,000 firms closed down last year, which is almost 70% more than in 2021. Businesses most impacted are restaurants, corner shops and hairdressers. This is partly due to remote work, which has greatly changed customers' habits. On top of that, business owners need to pay back government-guaranteed loans they had to take out during the lockdown period in 2020 and 2021. So if businesses had not contracted state-backed loans, they would have gone under after three months of lockdown. That's why I say they were forced, they were coerced. 
it was explained to them that everything would be fine, that once it was over, life was going to be so much better, without inflation, of course, and without any problems, and that the economy was going to be booming, and we could pay that back without any problems. So again, it's a huge scam. Shirat says one solution for small business owners is to declare bankruptcy. This would allow them to gain a 10-year delay to pay all their debt. He says there's also a more radical option. There is another way. Let's say we stop paying, and then we'll see. We can do that. We're not afraid to do that. Because if there are a lot of us, what will they do? We have to understand that if it's this, or closing down, or dying, that's what's at stake. After a while, people don't give a damn about being cut off. They are going to be cut off, they are going to close anyway. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Girls in Afghanistan are fighting the Taliban's higher education ban through online studies. And an 11-year-old chess prodigy is playing for the German national team. He and his family are refugees from Syria. Find out more about his story when we return. One of Russia's most active volcanoes erupted for a second day today. It sent plumes of ash miles into the sky over a remote far eastern peninsula. Residents have been ashed in to their homes. A volcano on Russia's remote Kamchatka peninsula kept erupting on Wednesday. It sent a plume of ash six miles into the sky, a scientific institute reported, and a hazard warning remains in place for airlines. Shivaluch, one of Russia's most active volcanoes, first began erupting just after midnight on Tuesday. At its peak six hours later, it sent an ash cloud over an area of nearly 42,000 square miles. It was the deepest covering in 60 years. In Kliuchi, the nearest village to the volcano at 30 miles away, residents were ashed in to their homes. Vera Mayorova said the ash lay five inches thick. Uh, the roads are completely terrible. It's very difficult to take the kids to kindergarten. Pupils at schools are studying from home. It's impossible to walk outside because of the ashfall. There have been no reports of casualties, though experts expect further, less intense eruptions in the coming days. Kamchatka extends far into the Pacific Ocean, northwest of Japan and about 300,000 people live there. Around 24 hours after the volcano began erupting, a 5.8 magnitude earthquake struck off the coast of Kamchatka, which scientists said was an aftershock from an earthquake on April 3rd. Shivaluch's last major eruption happened in 2007. It's had about 60 substantial eruptions in the past 10,000 years. A growing number of Afghan girls and women are turning to online studies at home. That's because the Taliban has banned them from higher education. However, even home study has its problems, such as stuttering internet and power outages, not to mention the high cost of a computer. Here's more on that story. In her Kabul home, Sophia logs on to an online English class. You get awareness. The Taliban government has barred female students from high schools and universities but it hasn't banned the internet. 
In fact, Taliban officials are regulars on social media. But Sophia's classmates distort and the picture freezes. Power cuts and cripplingly slow internet provide yet more hurdles for Afghan women. The 22-year-old says after years of war in the Taliban, they're used to persevering. I want to continue my studies in online courses and uh, this is my dream, this is my goal, to finish my studying, whatever, what happened in Afghanistan. Miss Sophia, how are you? Her online school, Rumi Academy, went from about 50 mostly female students to more than 500 after the Taliban took over in 2021. It says it had to turn hundreds down. The Taliban still allow online study. But Sophia's teacher, Sana, says there are always security concerns. It's so obvious that uh, if you want to do a cru crucial thing, if you want to take an action that is very important, you have to risk. Uh, and absolutely, uh, we risked everything. Yes, it is risky for us. A growing number of institutes are trying to reach girls and women digitally in their homes. 97% of Afghans are poor, so computers and Wi-Fi are out of reach for many. But Sophia believes it's impossible for Afghan women to be kept at home indefinitely. After every sunset, there is sunshine, there is a day. So this is why we must be hopeful and we don't lose our belief, our hopes, and uh, we must be strong in that situation. An 11-year-old chess prodigy will play for the German national team in Croatia later this month. He'll be the youngest German player in history. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on his story. Hussein Basu was just four when he became interested in chess. He would hover around the board as his father played in the evenings. After mastering the basic moves, Basu surprised everyone with his talent. In our family, we always play chess together, my father and I with my brothers. Hussein used to come and started asking how to move the pieces, how to play the game, and this is how he learned the basic moves of chess. Then he started seeing tactical moves we wouldn't see. The Basu family are Syrian refugees. In 2016, they settled in Lipstadt, Germany. The first thing Mustafa did was buy a chess set and find a youth chess club for his son. The club trainers soon saw Hussein was way ahead of the other children. He hadn't even learned enough German to be able to understand the coaching. I started playing a lot of tournaments in Germany, and that's how I improved my German. That's how maybe I made more friends. The coaches recommended that the then six-year-old attend a club at the state level. The ones I am playing with are all older and therefore maybe they have a bit more experience, but I honestly think it's great that I am able to play and I think that it's a fantastic opportunity. They will prepare me and the team for what's ahead. Basu won first place in Germany's under-10 competition in 2020. He took third place in the World Under-12 Championship last year. We are very proud that Hussein was invited to join the German team to participate in international tournaments. We wish for the German team to achieve good results. This success would be one for Germany, but also for Hussein. Hussein's family has launched a crowdfunding campaign to help cover travel costs. They hope he eventually finds a sponsor. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A performance that inspires. Shen Yun Performing Arts is touring the globe. We'll hear what audiences have to say after the break, here on NTD News Today.
Shen Yun is touring the world, bringing 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture to global audiences. Many said they are inspired. Let's take a look. A performance that brings back 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture, Shen Yun is touring around the world, inspiring audiences. Uh, from the costumes, the dancing was very fluid and lyrical, and just one of the singing was incredible. Uh, the instrumentation, everything was just it was it was beautiful and very moving too. And we have just witnessed a quite extraordinary performance with great, great pleasure. I saw that the whole crowd, the whole audience was enthusiastic and very happy when they left. Many cities honored Shenyun with proclamations, including Omaha and Toronto. I was very moved by the artistic quality, the beauty of the dance, the expressiveness of all the dancers, their earnestness, their belief in the message that you are bringing to people about freedom, about virtue. It's just really an incredible experience. It's very, you know, uplifting spiritually. Um, you know, it speaks to civilization, humanity. Shen Yun presents China's traditional culture from before communism. Theatergoers pointed out themes like hope and spirituality in the performance. I think that spirituality was something that brought the show together. This is something that is important and it needs to be talked about and recognized because spirituality is so important between Chinese people, Canadians, Americans, Europeans, everyone. It's something that everyone can connect on. I think the divinity part is really amazing to think that we're all, you know, regardless of religion or where you came from, that we all have divinity that we share amongst each other. So I think that's a really beautiful message. It brings hope. You know, it's, it's, it's hopeful, and that's a beautiful message to leave with. Shen Yun presents new performances every year. Audiences said they would recommend it to others. I thank you humbly, and um, from the bottom of my heart, greatly appreciate this experience, and um, we'll be sharing it as, as I can with others. It is a kind of feeling of elevation, of being able to look at such endless beauty. That's the feeling. Definitely a great feeling. I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for your, we got to see their gift and their talent, and they shared all of that with the audience tonight. I believe um, they gave it all to us, and I'm so grateful um, that they were willing to take their time and their talent and share it with the rest of Washington. Sheryung is performing at New York City's Lincoln Center until April 16th. The world tour concludes in May. NTD News, New York. Despite the prosperity we associate with cities, urbanization presents major health challenges. Let's take a look into how we can improve our wellness. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Our brains didn't evolve in cities, but in a few decades, almost 70% of the world's people will live in urban environments. Cities with their accelerated pace of life can be stressful. The results are seen in the brains and behavior of those raised in cities or currently living in one. On the upside, city dwellers are on average wealthier and receive better healthcare, nutrition and sanitation than rural residents. On the downside, they experience an increased risk of chronic disease. They also deal with a more demanding and stressful social environment and greater levels of inequity. In fact, city dwellers have a 21% greater risk for anxiety disorders. They also have a 39% increased likelihood of mood disorders. The demands of urban life include a constant need to filter information, dodge distractions and make decisions. 
we give our brains little time to recover? How do we slow things down? Nature seems to be the answer. Cognitive psychologist David Strayer's hypothesis is that being in nature allows the prefrontal cortex, the brain's command center, to dial down and rest like an overused muscle. Research shows even brief interactions with nature can soothe our brains. Stanford's Gregory Bratman designed an experiment in which participants took a 50-minute walk in either a natural or an urban environment. People who took the nature walk experienced decreased anxiety, negative emotion, and increased memory performance. Bratman's team found that walking in natural environments can decrease rumination. That's the unhealthy but familiar habit of thinking over and over about causes and consequences of negative experiences. Spending time in nature is an essential component of health and psychological resilience. Nature helps us withstand and recover from life's challenges. Even city dwellers can find nearby nature. It could be a garden, local park, or a trail. A supersized black hole zipping through space with a long trail of stars in its wake. This is the first time such a phenomenon has met human eyes. NASA's Hubble telescope captured this 200,000 light year long trail of stars. The black hole is twice the diameter of the Milky Way and weighs the same as about 20 million suns. It travels fast enough to cross between the Earth and the Moon within 14 minutes. It squeezes gas in its wake, leaving behind this long trail of new stars. The black hole may have emerged from collisions of galaxies. This means that it may not be the only black hole on the loose. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to share any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. I'm Chris Beers, NTD News, New York City. Music